0: If you have known me for any time, I am uh, not. Um, some some people uh, have told me that I'm an old soul in a young body, and what what I mean by that is, uh, you know, growing up in the church, you you don't fit into the way that the world uh, thinks. Sometimes, you know, you you can grow up in the church and and. Um, and, and yet be a heathen, you can not actually repent, even though you uh, attend church services. But if you grow up in a Christian family, uh, a lot of things are just kind of settled for you. Uh, whereas in the world, there is just this massive debate for every issue, every topic, relative truth, objective truth, you know, social mores, justice, the role of government whether or not we should, you know, be beholden to do justice to our neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, um, you know, I've never been one who says, you know, don't celebrate Christmas because it's just now a, uh, you know, it's been turned in, turned into this consumeristic holiday. I, you, if you know me at, for any length of time, I'm, I'm not a curmudgeon. Um, I, I'm not somebody who wants to Say, oh, everything's bad now, and everything used to be better back then. There's two errors when it comes to examining history. There's classical, uh, the the classical error that is everything was great back then, and everything now kind of you know is terrible, and and that's you know there's partial truth to that, but also you know not everything is perfect now, uh, but certainly things are getting better right so technological advances uh various you know liberations of people groups throughout the earth those have taken place the god's kingdom is uh taking progressive impact in in the world and in society um so you know we're not i'm not somebody who wants to say oh back in the days you know it, it was good back then and uh, the scriptures actually tell you not to say uh something like that they 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 warn you uh in the law somewhere it's written uh, don't say, oh, for the days when we were back in wherever, right? I mean, so this message, I just want to, uh, that's the preface to this message. I'm not saying you can't buy a turkey and uh, <clears throat> eat your turkey this coming Thanksgiving. What I am saying is is this, that there is a distinctly Christian way of celebrating Thanksgiving, and there is a distinctly worldly way of celebrating Thanksgiving. And moreover than that, Thanksgiving is not just a day, but it is a way of life, and so that's what kind of what I want to talk about today. So as we prepare for these meals, uh, I, I want to warn you about the danger of celebrating in the normal way. And I'm not saying what your family's always done. I'm saying the common way that our society celebrates Thanksgiving. I think there's some very serious dangers and we know this. It has to be true. Jesus said the, that the world hates the things of God and the ways of the world are set against the, the ways of God. The The ways of the world are diametrically opposed to the way that the father wants to structure his created uh, order and, and, and his society. And so, uh, as our society as a whole moves away from God, uh, we have to examine the way that we celebrate certain days and, and really the way that we approach certain ideas, certain topics. Now, I'm, I'm not someone to say that, you know, things in America are getting worse and worse, but it is true church attendance has dwindled quite significantly. And whether or not people are still serving the Lord, uh, I, I believe that the New Testament uh, you know presents the importance of the church as an institution as a society shaping uh, entity as the the primary means through which God uh, works in 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 the earth today and, and because of that uh, even though our society in many ways has become more godly uh, in certain areas. Uh, it, it, it hasn't in terms of, of what we're doing with the church. We have a huge number of people who, in, in the United States, who think that they're Christians. And when you talk about, you know, where they go to church, they, they don't feel like they need to go to a particular place and be connected with a particular group of people. There's this idea that they can just run rampant with Christ on their own and do whatever God wants them to do. And they're their own judge of, of the direction of God's uh, will for their life. And so I, you know, whether or not, you know, our society is past the point of no return, as some, you know, what I would think alarmist people would say, we, there is a deep need to restore some elements of our society and culture. And, and that primarily has to do with manners, uh, respect for the, your common man or your neighbor, and this idea of giving thanks and all things. And and I want to demonstrate the way in which uh, Thanksgiving is kind of turning into a day that is against the spirit uh, of which it was founded. In um, many of us know in Christmas, you know, there's Santa, and you know, Santa, um, he's a nice guy, and you know, he originally Saint Nick. Uh, he he, you know, was a, a good, godly man, and he brought children presents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But our society has a way of celebrating Christmas where we just give each other gifts. There's no mention of Christ in the home. There's no uh, attending of religious services. Many, many families in the United States still celebrate Christmas, but they're functionally atheistic. And so just like that, there is a way in which you can celebrate Thanksgiving and not actually be thankful at all. And I I think it's evident if you look at it. We have these huge meals and the temptation during this meal is to almost engorge yourself with this gluttonous kind of just eat till you're full. And then once you're full, take a nap and then wake up and eat again. And it just, it it becomes a a feast of gluttony instead of a feast of thanksgiving. Now, am I saying that you should never feast before the Lord? Absolutely not. The The law gave Israel requirements multiple times if they had a good productive year, they had to sell what they had, go to Jerusalem, buy buy whatever their heart desired, the law said, and it, which included at one point strong drink. And they were to celebrate before the Lord. And it says, for this will teach you the fear of the Lord. Celebrating before God in thanksgiving and thankfulness, it will actually create in you something which is lacking in this realm of the fear of the Lord. But on the other hand, you can take your uh, freedom as a license for, for, you know, licentiousness. It's it's just whatever I want to do, however I want want to do it. I think the the thing that's more glaringly apparent that our society is turning away from the original meaning of Thanksgiving is what happens the day after. On Black Friday, these stores... Have you ever been Black Friday shopping? You're not committing sin if you go Black Friday shopping. There's a tendency... There, there's a t- I'm, I'm not looking, you know, you're excommunicated and you're... <laughs> No, <clears throat> but these stores, they force their employees to work sometimes all night in prepping certain places of the store and getting certain things out of there. And, and then people wake up at these religious, I mean, if it was anything other than a religious devotion, it would seem insane, right? You know, um, waking up at three in the morning, getting in the car, going out and hitting eight, eight stores. And then I'm not saying if you participate in that, you're uh, committing sins of greed. However, there is a large number of people where the prime means of celebrating Thanksgiving, what they're really looking forward to is satisfying their desires to get good deals. And so they can have all the stuff that they think they really need and not kill their idol of their pocketbook. I think, I think Black Friday has this huge temptation around it. and And you can be a Christian and go to these things and not be full of greed in your heart, but you can also be an unbeliever, and when you th- think about Thanksgiving, you're really just looking forward to material gain. Okay. Um, so, so with that in mind, okay, uh, I believe it's necessary for us to enter this season to remember the things which, which mark a distinctly Christian mindset and way of celebrating, and also to uh, realize that this is not just a day of Thanksgiving. This is supposed to, according to our readings today, be the way in which we do everything. Um, so it's, it's appropriate at certain times and seasons to re-examine how we're doing in this, you know, this or that particular area. So with that in mind, I want to talk about these, these four things. Paul starts to talk about the mindset. That is, what, are, what is your heart, what is your mind set on? Uh, what is this idea of the old self? then after talking about the old self, Paul addresses some heart issues, or things that are the under root and cause, uh, the cause for all of these actions that that take place. We're also going to look finally at his his kind of capstone to all these ideas of of mindset, behavior, etc., in this idea of of a life that is encompassed, it's encapsulated with thanksgiving. So, so, um, if you're familiar with Colossians, uh, you may know some of the backstory. But uh, Paul Paul has heard about this great missional activity. There, there was a ton of people who came to know the Lord at, at Colossae, uh, and um, so Paul, uh, being the apostle, he is charged by God to form a people group, to form the church in Colossae, uh, and so he writes this letter, which we now entitle. Colossians, and this letter deals with a number of things, mostly with the the centrality of Christ, but it has a number of practical outworkings and it the centrality of Christ directs the things that we uh, need to form or shape or establish in our lives and so Paul basically begins to talk about these things and he starts with this idea of mindset. I think this is uniquely appropriate to the season and the days that we 're coming into in the next few weeks. The first idea here is that Paul tells the people of God, these new believers, that they must think differently than they've been thinking before. Not just in the way they think, but in what they're thinking about. He says that you should keep your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, this is this goes to the heart of what I'm speaking about today. You do not live on this uh on this earth to fulfill your own desires and you've got your you know 25 year plan and it's just all about getting what you want you have been bought with a price the precious blood of Jesus Christ and it is not at all up to you uh what you do with your life you you need to subject your life to the word of god and f- seek out his will and fulfill his will we don't live Uh, In uh, in, in America, as Christians, the great temptation is to kind of join in and participate this consumeristic lifestyle, this, you know, I live for myself, my goals, etc. Paul says you need to consider your life as being null and void. You now no longer live for yourself. And then he goes on to say, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Um, as a side note, I thought that this morning's Sunday school was the most uh, prescient, is that a word, prescient? That's exactly what I mean, prescient uh, and meaningful and timely word for young men in the church today. I think if you if you were here or or if you weren't here, I would really encourage you to get that uh, that message and listen to it again because it dealt with a number of heart issues, which are the the under uh, the, the, they're the cause of what we're talking about today: greed, etc. You know, and and so living as if you don't belong to you anymore. You are now a servant, and you you seek to glorify Christ and to help establish his people. And, um, you know, I think this is exactly right. You know, uh, my dad, he mentioned Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. And I don't like naming particular people but the apostles do it in their letters. And I think you really need, they do. They they named certain people who were uh, messing up the church in Ephesus and in Timothy. And he, he said to get rid of these guys, don't allow them to teach anymore. And, you know, Joel Osteen has a book on on the bestseller list of New York times, your best life now. I I want to say that Christ died on the cross and you have the best life that you can possibly have in you know being washed by His blood, but you as a believer are not looking for this earthly life to be your best life now. the The primary hope in the in the New Testament is not dying and go to he- going to heaven and having enough money in your 401k to coast into the last part of your life. the The primary goal of the apostolic uh, theology of the New Testament is the return of Jesus Christ and the restoration of all things, and that alone. Is our hope? Um, <clears throat> various catechisms actually uh, start with this question, and uh, one by the that I think is really appropriate. We may start using it in the church in the next few years. By by a guy by the name of Tim Keller, who he's he's synthesizing two different catechisms, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism. He 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 decided the most important question for a new believer to answer when they come to follow Christ and to have their mind renewed by the word of God and the spirit of God is this, what is our only hope in life and death? That's the question. And the answer that the, that, uh, that the catechumen or the person who's learning the catechism, the answer that they're supposed to give back or, or that they're taught is that we are not our own, but belong in both body and soul in both life and death to God our Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. And he said he put that there because, you know, in his context, Tim Keller's in New York City. And New York City is like the capital of greed and and uh, selfish consumption. and And so Tim Keller said the most pressing issue for American Christians today is not whether we vote for abortion or anti-abortion candidates. You know, he even contrasted it to, you know, the, the moral majority fights in the 80s and 90s, he said the most important issue, the most important heart issue for Christians today is whether or not they have killed the idol of greed because that is the supreme idol in our land. And I think that's an extremely sobering idea. So, so you know, your best life now is not at all what Jesus Christ died to, to do. Jesus Christ came to restore his creation not so that you could have a lexus and you know i don't you, you can have a lexus but but not so that you can just live as if I, my primary goal in life is making money spending it how i want so this is the temptation for us today and these mindsets uh the mindset of the world values earthly treasures over and against the heavenly treasure of jesus that's really what paul's uh, talking about so rather than trying to please god by Following his word, living in civility with your fellow man. Uh, men today in our culture, they live for the the satisfaction and the the gratifying their own desires. And Paul says to put away evil desires. I'm an equal opportunity uh, basher. A few weeks ago, I um I I tried to to wake us up to this reality by being at an advertising agency. Uh, I worked at a, a place for three years where our primary goal in in our Uh, Jobs is to actually sell ads and so the the way in which that uh, people sell ads is by hello Uh, The way in which that we sell ads is by uh, Actually appealing to emotional desires within you you know within people and and one of the ways that that uh, We sell ads is by appealing to felt needs right and what? does anybody remember the example I gave a few weeks ago uh, about Coke? Coke is happiness. Have you seen that? Have you seen that new ad? Coke is happiness. That, that is what Coca-Cola is desiring to, to, uh, you know, present to you as the satisfaction of your emotional needs for joy and, and life. And I just want to wake up, I, I just want to say to you that Coke is a fleeting pleasure that is very sweet and bad for your teeth, and it's delicious. I had one last night, but I didn't achieve happiness when I drank Coke. Um, likewise, it, has, has anybody seen this new Apple commercial, The designed by Apple? Have you, you would know if you've seen it. I would encourage you, go check this out. Now, I have an iPhone. It's right over there. I've got a MacBook. I use it. I like it. But Apple has a certain world of value, a core value, in in the way that they present their goods to the earth. And they started with this ad when they redesigned iOS 7. They came out with this ad, and it is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard a company say in a commercial but I still, I'm not going to burn my iPhone. I'm not telling you to burn your iPhone. I'm telling you to not love your iPhone in your heart more than Christ or his word or his people. They begin the ad and they say, this is it. This is what matters. The experience of a product, how it makes someone feel. The ultimate meaning in the universe for Apple in California, in Cupertino, is the experience of of a piece of software. That will be updated in two years. (laughs) That that is a distinctly competing worldview. Christ says that fulfilling the will of the Father is happiness. That there is life, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. And Apple says, this is it. This is what matters for you. They're attempting to appeal to people's sense of need for beauty. And and they're saying, we've put all of our effort, blood, sweat, and tears, to make sure this is the best interface that we could have come up with, and this is now our thing. And and so, you know, it's in the ether. As, as Americans, we need to be aware that there are competing claims to the things which are, are, God has set up as emotional desires, emotional needs, our uh, are, are, are needs as humans— and that our world seeks to fulfill them through material things, and the, the only thing that will fulfill is a relationship with the Creator. So the way that you structure and order your life is supposed to be informed by the understanding that this life is not all that there is, and that our true hope comes and is, will be revealed at the return of Jesus Christ. That the glory of the next age far, super, uh, far supersedes anything that we can imagine right now. And that this is not the time to have your best life. And, you know, this other idea that's in the culture, if you've been on Twitter or Facebook, you've been seeing this stuff, you only live once. That's not for the, not for the believer. We believe that Jesus Christ will return and bring us up out of the ground. Now, that sounds like foolishness, but it is the wisdom of God in Christ. We will live again as we were intended to in a fully restored creation with God walking on the earth in the person of Jesus and with his presence and spirit uh, attending. The book of Revelation says at the end there will be no need for light uh, in the new Jerusalem for the lamb is the light of the city. Now you can take that as a metaphor, but I really think that the throne room is really bright and that he will be here and we will worship God as we were intended to. So, uh, Paul teaches these believers, they should be thinking about the heavenly things, uh, namely Jesus Christ, the God-man who has overcome the world. Don't participate in the way that the world thinks. Now, that, that doesn't mean you, you need to go out and live on a farm and uh, grow your own food and, and not get a phone and uh, shoot anybody who comes on your property. You're, you're not running away from other humans, but you're not participating in their system either. He explains to these Christians that the present time on earth is not your true life, and, um, and and we have a hope that is coming. So with this in mind, now that he's addressed the mind, Paul moves on to address the actions or the things that take place as a result of our thinking, and he starts to tell them to stop sinning. Now, this is kind of important for younger believers or, or people who have uh, sometimes you've got struggles with assurance. The great question when you read scripture and when you you hear injunctions to put to death sin, you need to ask yourself the question, who is Paul writing to right now? Who is Paul writing to? Paul's not writing to the world. Paul isn't telling the unbelievers to stop sinning. He's writing to a group of Christians who have been meeting at Colossae for years these are people who've been in the church two, three, four, or five years, and he's writing a letter, and he's saying, stop sinning. Are they Christians? Yes. But what are they doing? They're continuing to sin. Now, we know that the ultimate end for every believer is that is that of progressive sanctification, this idea that as we walk with Christ, we will become more like Christ. At, and First uh, John says, you know, at when we see him, we will be like him, as in, as you see Christ more and more, finally revealed at the return, uh, you will be more and more like him. The things of the earth grow slowly dim, as the, that great hymn says. And so Paul's writing to Christians, and the question is, do Christians really commit sexual immorality? Do they really covet? Like, are they greedy for other people's stuff? Do real Christians get angry and wrathful? Do they really become governed by ill will? He says, put away malice. What is malice? Malice is bad desires, bad will, bad intent. Do Christians really operate with bad intent sometimes? Absolutely. Overwhelmingly, yes. We we do. It happens. What's Paul saying? He's saying, stop these things. How are, How are we to stop? This section of verses where he's telling them to stop sinning Stop being covetousness, stop being harsh, stop, stop being filled with malice. It's encompassed by the renewal of your mind and the attitudes of thanksgiving in the heart. That's, it's kind of like bookends. Um, I've been trying to introduce us to this idea of chiastic structures. Paul, Paul sets it up, change the way you think, change the way you behave, and change the, what's in your heart. Those, those things of how you think and what's in your heart give rise to the way that you, the way that you act. So yes, we still do these things. However, we know that this is not our way of life. It's not our manner of life. And day by day, as we look to Christ and trust in him, this old self kind of fades away. It's, um, <clears throat> it's a little bit puzzling if you've read the New Testament. The New Testament presents an idea that many uh, theologians refer to as progressive sanctification. That's a big word. It just means that day by day, as you live, you make progress in the way that you behave, that is, your, your manner of activity, whether it conforms to God's word. It's not mere moralistic, you know, don't do this, don't do that. You'll learn these uh, laws better over time. But rather, over time, the Holy Spirit works on your life. The word of God fills your mind, and it, it begins to inform the way that you think. And so, on the cross, when Jesus says it's finished, we we hear that and we trust and we believe and we know that it is finished. Jesus has made atonement for the sins of the world and those who place their trust in him can be recreated in his in His name. And, and that is a done thing. That is completely done. When we take communion later uh, at the end of service day, we're not re-crucifying Christ. It is rather just an entering into and a, a remembrance of uh, a rejoining of that activity that took place two thousand years ago. He has paid our penalty, and by faith in His work, we can be made new. And yet, we've t- totally died to sin, and and Paul says that your your old man has been crucified. And yet, we see at the same time these injunctions to put on the new self. Now, this is where uh, grammar really gets helpful. What is put on? It's a present tense verb. It says, you do this now, right? Earlier in the chapters in Colossians, he says, this is how you came to know the Lord, by faith. You were were redeemed by his work. God put together uh, your, he took all of your debts and he put it on a cross. And the the writ, writ of trespasses that was against you, it was removed by his work. And what happens then is he then says, put on the new self, so there's this sense it's a confusing idea, it's a tenuous idea, but there's this sense in that it's done, and yet we know that we still have issues in our life. We still have times where we sin. Now that's not your the end of the end of your story, but it makes sense if you think about the way that God has created and crafted the human person. You have unique talents, abilities, ways of thinking, uh, personality emotional capacities for joy, love, et cetera, et cetera. And you as a human being are the most complex element of God's created order. And in you, when you when you come to Christ, there takes place a transaction at the foundational level. You are recreated, but there is a continuity. There's a continuation of how you lived in the past. Um, I'd like to present it in, in kind of an an idea. I want you to use your imaginations. Okay, um, let's think. For example, that you work for a company. Um, if you don't work for a company, you uh, your university. You can put this in the setting of your university. Your boss or teacher comes to you and says, "Hey, we we believe that you would be really good to head up our initiatives in in Tokyo, and we want you to leave in the next two weeks." So you you hear this and you're like, "Oh man." What am I going to do? My family, we, none of us speak Japanese. We don't know anyone in Japan. If, and, and, you know, he told me that uh, if I don't take this offer, I have to be let go. What do you do? Well, let's say, let's say, for example, just go with me here with your imagination. Let's say you find out, you know, you get some godly counsel. You find out that it is the will of God for you to go to Tokyo. You pack your bags, you get on a plane, you get off the plane, what do you do? What's the challenge? The challenge is that you don't know Japanese. You can't do anything in that land without knowing Japanese. You, you can possibly get some help at train stations, maybe a few restaurants, especially in a big city like Tokyo, but you cannot live out your life without beginning to learn their language and take on their culture. You really are in Japan, but you're not at all Japanese. You're not even turning Japanese. You're like just beginning to do it. That's what it's kind of like to become a believer. You have lived in sin for decades. If you come to know the Lord in your 20s or 30s, you've spent 20 years being a hater of God. And the way that you think, your entire culture has been shaped by whatever is out there in the world. And when you become a new believer, you, you yes, you are in Japan, so to speak. You're, you're in the promised land, but uh, not that Japan's the promised land, but you're in the promised land, but you don't at all speak their language. You don't know how, it, you don't know how to behave as a Christian. You just accepted Jesus at a concert last week. And, and we get discouraged sometimes thinking that, oh, I know that as a Christian, I ought to be behaving better. That's not at all what the New Testament says. It says that there's a continuity of your life. Your, your life experiences what you know, and that you, d- you are to allow your mind to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. So with that in mind, Paul then begins to say, now don't focus on these actions. Put them away. Get rid of them. But here's how you get rid of them. He, begins, or he continues to tell them to fix the issues of the heart, namely compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These, all of these words are different manifestations of a spirit of thanksgiving operating in your heart. This is not, Paul says, a legalistic or mere moralistic injunction. That is, you're not just trying to behave better because you know good little boys and girls need to be good little boys and girls. This isn't kind of, you need to do these things because you're a Christian and that's what Christians do. Paul has a distinctly gospel-focused core and and manner of reasoning about these things that indicates to us how we are to put these elements in in our in our lives. <clears throat> in Colossians three thirteen, he says, "Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, uh, you, you need to forgive each other." And then he he says the reason why you need to forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. We do not forgive because we were told to forgive in Sunday school. We forgive because we acknowledge the one who forgave us of an infinite trespass against the nature of God. And that is the basis for thanksgiving. That's the basis for putting in compassion. We forgive because the Lord forgave us first. And this is really the entire scripture. It's helpful to, to see these themes and to confirm them in various places. With God, it's never law first and then grace. Many people have interpreted the New Testament as fixing problems in the Old Testament. I just want to tell you that's not true. Okay, uh, Galatians, the book of Galatians is very helpful in this regard. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not, not Abraham completed the law and he was counted as righteous. Abraham heard from God an oracle uh, given to him concerning what God wanted to do with Abraham on the earth, and he heard it and believed it. And it says, the scripture then says, and it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now, did Abraham screw up later in life? Yes, he did, a few different times. But uh, some of them are recorded. Most of them are probably not recorded. He probably was harsh with his his wife. He probably made bad financial decisions that were a lack of stewardship, etc., etc. But did Abraham live in a righteous way? Was he a righteous man? Absolutely. How was that righteousness established? He heard the gospel. The New Testament does say he heard the gospel. He heard the gospel and believed it. Now, again, Not only did it happen with Abraham, it also happened, you know, usually the case is that we think, you know, Moses came down and gave the law, but Jesus gives a law of love, and that is uh, both true and not true. The way that it's not true is it doesn't focus on the fact that before God gave his people the law, he took them out of Egypt. That act of taking them out of their bondage was grace, the act of giving them a leader who he had forged through the fires of the desert, uh, this man named Moses who is seen as one of the most righteous men in the, in, in the earth, they gave this people group an uh, existence. He says, you were not a people, and you were nothing, and yet I chose you. You, you Israel, were nothing special in the land of men that that I should have chosen you over and against the Babylonians or the Chinese or the Egyptians, etc., He chose the weakest, most insignificant people group and formed them into his special people. And he did so with an extremely uh, deep purpose. And that purpose was so that God would, would bless a people group. All the nations of the earth would see the blessing of God on Israel. And then he would send his son to them. And that would be the stage, what the scripture talks about as the fullness of times. So this idea that, that you know the New Testament is a fix of the Old Testament is just not true at all. With God, absolutely, it is never first law. And then because you do the law, it's now grace. It's always grace first. And it's not even that you have grace, therefore you do the law. And if you don't do the law, then you lose your grace. That would be like a, a ransom style of grace. It doesn't, God doesn't operate that way. And so the gospel is that while we still hated God, Christ died for us. And through faith in his work, he has recreated us in his image. He has put us uh, in such a way, in place, in his people, where he can write his word on our hearts. He says, I'm going to take out in in the the promise to Ezekiel, I'm going to take out your heart of stone, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. You're going to be a real human again. The 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 fall the the corruption of your image that took place through Adam, uh, I'm going to undo that and I'm going to make you capable of of real real love, capable of true emotional joy, uh, patience, kindness, goodness. And so again, we're not we don't forgive just because we learned in Sunday school to forgive. We forgive because we see Christ forgiving us. In that same way, we're compassionate because when we were dead in our sins, God stooped down from heaven and picked us up. Just like Israel was supposed to learn the weightier provisions of the law, like compassion and, and mercy, it was because God took them from nothing and brought them out of Egypt and made them a special treasure on the earth. Not only are we compassionate, we're also kind. Because rather than destroying us in a sort of reactionary wrath, God had extreme patience and he sent his son at what we were just talking about, the fullness of the times, so that the redemption would be plainly visible. God set everything up at the time that Jesus had come in such a way that the gospel could spread in the most rapid way without allowing evil to grow faster than than, uh, his plan of redemption could unfold. And so Jesus comes at this fullness of the times. He makes a way for our redemption. And this is the great kindness of God towards us. This is the great patience that he's shown us. We're humble, not because we were taught that, you know, it's good to be humble, but we're humble because the Son, who the scriptures say is the radiance of the glory of God, the express image of his likeness, that is, no one has ever seen God, yet the Son beholds him, uh, without any sort of veil, and the Son, who is his exact image, his exact likeness, the radiance of the glory of the Father, veiled that glory and put on human flesh and walked on this earth. That is why we are humble because we have seen how great a, a sacrifice Jesus did in leaving the bosom of his Father and coming to dwell on the earth with men. That is why we 're humble we 're not humble because we you know knew. At one point in Sunday school, you know, humility is a virtue, we need to behave, etc., etc. What I'm saying is, by by coming to realize what has taken place through the unfolding plan of redemption that God has wrought on the earth, by by seeing those things, our mind is renewed, it shapes our character, and out of our character flow our actions and the the issues of the heart. So, Paul gets to the central component of a godly heart, he says that, all of these things are, are really, you know, capstoned or, or they there's a culmination of these ideas in a spirit of thanksgiving. And so he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and admonishing one another. So you're supposed to let the word of Christ dwell in you. How does the word dwell? Well, first it has to make entry into you 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 first have to hear the word and read the word and allow people to speak the word of God into your life then you need to admonish one another and teach so you need to take that material appropriate it study it be able to synthesize and and represent and then you need to sing psalms hymns and spiritual songs that's what the church exists to create in a in a, in a person's life a way or a a, a very practical um configuration or a foundation so that these things can be practiced and done. And then finally, do all of these things with thankfulness in your heart. And then he goes on to say, and even if you're doing other things, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father. Everything you should you do should be done, and out, out, as you're doing and after the doing, you should be giving thanks. That is what Paul's saying. So he says to be thankful Then he he focuses on those three ways. And then finally, you know, Thanksgiving doesn't come but once a year. You know, there's that uh, phrase, Christmas comes but once a year. Well, that's true. Christmas is celebrated once a year. But the act of Thanksgiving, the heart that is thankful, is not a a once-a-year thing. I I saw something on Facebook the other day that was uh, beautiful. It, I think it was from, I don't know if it was from a believer. It may have been from an unbeliever. But their rebuke was true. It said, Thanksgiving. It was one of those, have you ever seen those goofy e-cards? They're like, they're caustic and, and very um, cynical. But th- it's it, it said, Thanksgiving, the time where everyone who has complained for 11 months on Facebook suddenly turns into the most thankful person. Did you post that, Beth? Well, no, Somebody else posted it? It's, you know... It may have been from an unbeliever, and it may have been done in ill will, but it certainly does sting, because it's true. You and I are not to live our lives on our own, doing our own thing, going through the course of life as if, you know, life's up to us. We are to live our lives seeking to know the will of God, incorporate that will of God at the first place in our decision-making priority with no seconds and in that, we then uh, shape our lives in such a way that we can love and serve those God has called us to and put us in place with. And then from that place, we do everything in thanksgiving. Why do we do it? Because you and I had no hope other than Jesus Christ coming to the earth and dying in our place. We had absolutely nothing that we could do. What, what does a dead person have at their disposal? Nothing. Nothing. What does the scripture say that we were before we came to Christ? We were dead in our sins. We couldn't even obey a command because we were lifeless and without the ability to act. And God steps in at the perfect time and accomplishes something that we couldn't do. That's why we're thankful. And we don't take his wonderful grace and, and turn it into a license to do whatever we want this Thanksgiving. So that's why we're uh, thankful we're thankful because of what he does, and not only that, week by week he sustains us <clears throat> it's interesting to note we're not going to get this to this today, but it's interesting to note after this, Paul starts to talk about all of the heart issues uh, that are at work and that and then right after that, he then talks about the order of the family he he gives specific commands to various people in the family and he says how that they should behave. And I think what he's doing is he's subtly saying that thankfulness in the heart of every member of the family is the only realistic foundation to a family that is truly Christian and, and honoring Christ. I, I think that's what he's getting at. And because God is so kind to us, he yet again today invites us to take uh take our place at the table and experience him. So let's pray and then we'll we'll take communion.